to hear from us. Um, and we just really want to have a conversation. We want to have a conversation about what it just as I am, which is also a, um, uh, not just a bestseller, but uh, I tried to get this book, Cicely Tyson's book, for about two weeks on Amazon, I just want to say, and it was constantly sold out. Finally got it in my cart. I'm so happy to have it. Uh, just wanted to throw in that aside. Um, but also, also uh, she is editor of Just As I Am, the National Book Award, uh, finalist Jacqueline Woodson's Another Brooklyn, the NAACP Image Award winner of Dick Gregory's Defining Moments in Black History, the James Beard winner of Michael Tweedy's The Cooking Gene, and Jennifer Lewis is the mother of Black Hollywood. Loved that book. Um, so, so many other forthcoming titles by Zora Neale Hurston, Natalie Bazile, Mary Jane Blige, Chris Gardner, Paul Beattie, um, and she's also uh, published Steve Harvey, Ursula Burns, Sam Asher, Henry Louis Gates Jr., Timbaland. The list goes on and on. So we are so excited to be a part of this conversation with her and talk about so many of the wonderful people that she has worked with. Uh, we share a sort of similar birthplace. We were both born in Michigan. Uh, she hails from Flint, Michigan, graduated from Michigan State University and James uh, Madison College, and currently lives in Harlem, New York. Next up, we have with us Chris Jackson. No relation, unfortunately. <laughs> Chris Jackson is the publisher and editor-chief of One World, also an imprint of uh, Random House. He's the editor of a wide-ranging award of, you know, national best-selling um, books, including Brian Stevenson, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Jill Lavoy, Trevor Noah, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, our very own Ibram Kinde, uh, Heather McGee, Alicia Garza, and Hong. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, he is the person to know in publishing. These are both giants and people to know when it comes to publishing. They are gatekeepers. And uh, his own writing has has appeared in the Paris Review, in Callaloo, also in the Atlantic, and he too lives in New York. So we are honored, guys. We are honored to be with two heavyweights who just have so much to offer us in terms of their wisdom and their knowledge about this field and how to make a revolutionary book. So with that, we're just going to go in and I'm going to start with Chris uh, and follow up with Tracy. I want you to just give our listeners right now, tell us your trajectory. Tell us how you got started, how you got into the publishing field, how you got your own imprint, how you became a boss, basically, is what is what we want to know. Was it a smooth, straight line and path or, you know, were there stops and starts and challenges? Uh, yeah, so I started when I was a child. I was, I got my first job in publishing when I was still in high school, in fact. Um, and, uh, and kind of bounced around a little bit. Um, while I was going to school, I worked with a bunch of small, weird, uh, publishers or, you know, little editorial projects or research projects. Um, and then, uh, my first real publishing job uh, was at a place called John Wiley and Sons, which was a reference publisher, where I was an editorial assistant. I think that's when I first maybe encountered Tracy um, at something called the Pen. Ooh, what was it called? The Open Book mm -hmm. um, Committee, maybe, where young uh, African American uh, or really just editors of color um, kind of got together. There was not that many of us then, um, and uh, and I was inspired by a lot of people I saw, including Tracy. And some of the older people who'd been, you know, kind of trailblazers in black publishing. And so, you know, I kicked around 
I was at Wiley for a while. I was at a place called Crown Publishing for a while. Um, at every stage, I was trying to find ways to do the books that, uh, you know, kind of meant the most to me. And I, and I did some books that meant a lot to me personally. I don't know how many other people got to read them. Um, and then uh, I started at a place called Spiegel and Growl um, about 12 or 13 years ago where I was an executive editor. And that's when I did some of the writers who uh, I'm still working with people like Tallahassee Coates, uh, Brian Stevenson, Trevor Noah, I did over that time. And then about four years ago, um, I, I relaunched One World um, as an imprint at Penguin Random House. And that goes all the way back to my beginning in publishing when I first was meeting these people who I thought were so inspiring and like trailblazers and doing the work. Um, and One World was one of those imprints. And I, it was an imprint that I thought was sort of badly treated over the years and eventually closed down. So when I got a chance to open my own imprint, um, start my own imprint, I wanted to go back to that moment and to those uh, kind of ideals about what publishing could be. And so we started that about uh, in 2017, was our, 2018 was our first full year of publishing. Um, and we've had, uh, and that's where we published Ibram Kendi and some of the other people you mentioned. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, it's been very exciting. One World is a, is a publisher that's meant to be, let me go back to that original vision um, of what kind of a multicultural publisher could be a publisher that looked for voices that were not, you know, telling familiar narratives, but kind of coming from other points of view, a place where writers of color could really feel at home to tell their stories the way they wanted to tell them. Um, and we've had some good successes, like with uh, uh, Dr. Kendi's work, um, a writer named Carla Villavicencio, who we, was a National Book Award finalist last year for a book called The Undocumented Americans. A writer named Kathy Park Hong, who has a bestseller right now with a book called Minor Feelings. Heather McGee, um, whose book The Sum of Us has been, um, you know, one of the standouts this year. Um, and, and just a ton of great books coming up, including the 1619 Project book, which we have coming up this fall. So uh, that's what we do. And um, that's, how I, that's how I got here. journeys um but um you know i came from from michigan as you said earlier um dr jackson and um so it was a long journey it was a long long journey um it was a long journey to get from flint to new york then to get a job in publishing where I started at the Feminist Press, which I enjoy. And um, a friend of mine, my college roommate, asked me, she said, um, one day, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? And I said, oh, I hadn't thought about it. Because for me, college was just wonderful, a place where you could just read and write. And that's all, that was your responsibility. And I thought that was in, an incredible thing. And so I hadn't thought much past it. And so she told me, well, you're always reading. So why don't you ask those people for a job? And I was like, what people are you talking about? And then so, but back then, there was actually telephone numbers and addresses in, uh, in a book. So that you could call up the publisher. And so I called up the publisher, the Feminist Press, asked them if I could have a, a job. And they said, sure. And so I was like, okay, 
And so they said, what day would you like to start? And so um, I picked a date in September. It was September 27th. I still remember it to this very day. And um, I was too scared to ask them, like, how much money would I make? You know, so so I didn't because I didn't want, you know, to not have the job. And so when I arrived in New York, I, I ended up with a $50 a week internship. Oh, exactly. And so living in New York, and I and I had $65 in my pocket, so, you know, and this $50 a week. And But I was fortunate enough to be able to stay with a great aunt, mm-hmm. um, which was great. Mm-hmm. And um, But I got a night job at the Double Day Bookstore. Wow. And, and loved it, the one that was on Fifth Avenue and like uh, 50, 53rd or 50-something Street. I can't even remember that part anymore. And, you know, and I always loved books and I'd always loved bookstores. And I remember um, my friend giving me a book when I was like, um, I think I was 10 or 11. And it was The Bluest Eye. And I remember reading it. And then I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, are these people black? Are these people black? Oh my God, these people are black. Black people, we've made it into books. Oh my God, I was like, I was losing my mind. And so, you know, we went to the bookstore like every week. As you know, I had to find more. Yeah. And I did. And I had to comb the shelves, you know, looking book by book to try to figure out, you know, if this is a black book. Or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and a lot of times publishers like to, disguise the fact that it's a black book or that it's written by a black person, um, particularly back then. So it was, it was, it was difficult, but you know, we went through every single book in the bookstore and, and then I, I read them all and then, um, and everything that I could get my hands on. And then finally, when I'm in New York, you know, working at the feminist press, um, I met Marie Brown, who was on the board and Janetta Cole and Marie Brown said, you know, let's be friends. And, and I was so happy. I was like, okay, now I have a friend in New York. I have a job in New York and everything. And then Marie took me on this wonderful, you know, journey where I worked with her for a while. I worked at Essence for a while because um, although I got the internship very easily at the feminist press, it was um, very challenging at that time to actually as a person of color to get a editorial, um, editorial assistant position, mm-hmm. you know, so that took seven years. And, um, when I finally landed at Henry Holt and company, you know, through the help of another person of color, um, I landed at, the, at Henry Holt and it, it was just a great place to start. I've met wonderful people there who, are definitely allies and remain allies today, such as Bill Strong and Bruno Quinson. And so that was great. And then I, I left, um, I left Henry Holt after six years, um, because there was a book I wanted to publish and it was just the last time I could be told no Mm. on a particular project. I said, "Mm." and so I left there. And I went to Simon & Schuster and worked with the wonderful Emily Bessler and, um, and Judith Kerr. And then I left there after four years because um, I did a lot of work then um, 
in those four years with, with books that sold, you know, over, over a million copies plus. And I, and, and Chris, I admire you so much because I know what goes into that. And it seems that you do it year after year and, and that's outstanding. And, And as a matter of fact, I, you know, the more I think about it and I think about it a lot, I don't think that there is another editor publisher as accomplished as yourself in terms of, of what you acquire and, and their performance and, and how they're revolutionizing the world. Mm. And I admire that immensely. Well, that's and so then, nice. So, you're, you're Thank you. I really do. <laughs> Coming from you, I really appreciate it. Really, I mean, you're just... Uh, there's so much the industry needs to learn from you. That's what I got to say. And then so after, uh, after that, I, um, I took a break. Um, after I left Simon & Schuster, I took a break, and I was a, a fake literary agent. And, um, <laughs> and um, mostly I was learning to play tennis from scratch, which took years and years and hours and hours and days and days. And, um, and I did that. And... Um, and it was outstanding. And then I was fortunate enough that um, Glenda Howard um, recognized that maybe she was tired of tennis out there wandering around doing nothing. And she invited me to come over to um, Harlequin, which I stayed for nine months. Um, and then Jonathan Burnham invited me over to, through Dawn Davis's recommendation, over to, to HarperCollins to run the Amistad imprint. And, um, and it was great. You know, even though, even though it was just me. (laughs) We can hear feedback just a little bit. Perfect. Thank you. Go ahead. Okay. Was it me? No, no, no. I think it was Chris. Chris. Okay. So, and so I worked, um, you know, at, at HarperCollins, where I am now, um, where Charles Harris started, um, well, moved Amistad to in 1999. And we've been there since then. And this year's our 35th anniversary. I'm very proud of that. And Charles started the imprint, you know, to ensure that, um, that our presence is documented. Yeah. And documented by us, which was not happening a lot. Yeah, yeah. Back then, he was a mm. pioneer and a revolutionary in that way. Mm. Mm. I mean, both these paths are so remarkable and um, serendipitous, but also, you know, through connections and relationships and perseverance we see how people get to rise within their fields and get opportunities to create amazing works and edit amazing works um and I wonder for both of you what um what has really been the key ingredient in how we understand like a revolutionary book I know that like you know I'm a historian by training but when I was a kid I read um all of the Mildred D. Taylor books and she wrote Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry and Let the Circle Be Unbroken and um, when I was a little girl and the American Girl series came out with Addie, I was like, oh my god a black girl! <laughs> These books that that probably, you know, if I were to read them now I don't know how I would, if I would feel the same but at that moment it was powerful to be able to read something historical 
about a black family or about a black child or black children um, and see myself in in the literature and not be belittled by that, but be empowered um, and encouraged to, to want to become a historian. I, I really credit those books with having uh, pushed me into these ideas. And I wonder, you know, do all books have to be revolutionary in order to create changes? Is it about sales or is it about the message or is it a sweet spot, a combination of both? Uh, what goes into like these books that have changed so much of our lives and our conversations? Chris, you want to start first? You're still muted though. Chris, you want to pick it up while we're waiting for Chris? You want to answer? Oh, okay. Chris, are you good now? Yeah, I think I'm good now. Okay. Um, can you, <laughs> Go ahead, Chris. Yes, I'm sorry. I'm having some difficulties. Anyway, um, yes, I think you can You can have a book that, you know, sells a million copies and it can be not particularly revolutionary. You can have a book that sells, you know, a hundred and it can be. Um, I think, you know, every book is kind of doing different kinds of works. Like even the books that you're referring to, sometimes the sort of revolutionary element of it is in what it represents, the fact that it brings another, you know, kind of representation into literature, sort of like what Tracy was talking about when she was reading The Bluest Eye. Like, that has a, um, you know, it can have a revolutionary effect in the sense that, you know, I, you know, I did a book with Alicia Garza last year, and, um, and she reiterated something that I read before, actually, in the work of another one of my authors that I did, a guy named David Graeber years and years ago, which is that a revolution is when you change, like, the common sense, right? And, or, like, that's one element of a revolution, is when people start to kind of move the window of what our common sense is. And that can happen just through representation, just through seeing, you know, the black superhero or the black protagonist in a novel. It changes our common sense of what's possible. That can also happen with ideas. And, um... And sometimes it's a little idea that gets bigger. So the, the, that's the hundred copy book that has a hundred influential copies that spreads an idea. And sometimes it can be the million copy selling book that really does change common sense because it shifts the way we think about some fundamental question or issue. So I think about a book like Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, which is you know one of my favorite books that I've ever worked on. And that's a book that changed the way people thought about the death tunnel and about the criminal justice system. And it, along with books like The New Jim Crow, shifted the window of what was the acceptable range of conversation about this critical issue to the point now where there's almost an assumption that we're trying to stop mass incarceration. Like even, you know, some Republicans are talking that kind of language. And that's a shift, you know, or with Ibram Kendi, where you have like a word like anti-racist, which was not a word that was in particularly common usage even two years ago is now like something that, you know, everyone is trying to you know, either resist or adapt to. It has to kind of reckon with. And that's because it's changed our common sense about a fundamental idea. And I think that's something that can be revolutionary. But it can also be revolutionary when you see yourself in a book for the first time, you know, or you see a story that kind of names something that's been inside of you um, that no other book has named. You know, a book like Between the World and Me, like Tanasi Coates' book, was one of those books where it wasn't revolutionary in the sense that it posited some new theory or had some grand new solution, 
but people read it and some it echoed something that they had felt but hadn't had a way to express mm-hmm. and that also has a kind of power that can that can really shift a conversation like a national conversation mm-hmm. um, or even just a conversation among people so yes those yeah. are some examples I think mm-hmm. no that's perfect that's perfect I think I'm I just started reading uh, minor feelings now or I should say listening because lately I've been listening to all of my books on all of them. <laughs> but um that book for me has shifted so much of my ideas and thoughts about, you know, what it means to be Asian American and how there's mm-hmm. so much like, you know, uh, solidarity or similarity within the black experience and the Asian experience and the way that like pulls Richard Pryor in to have these larger <laughs> yeah. about what it means to be Asian. It's, it's, um, it's a phenomenal book. It's one I'm recommending to all my students, but I think it's also one of those books that you may not think will connect to you. Uh, and then you find all of these similarities uh, that, that remind you how, like what it means to really be human and how the human experience really is so, um, you know, common to all of us, these experiences that we have. So uh, Tracy, what about for you? What, what makes a revolutionary book, what has sort of shifted for you or what do you feel like are the ingredients, the key ideas and thoughts that go into making a book uh, a shapeshifter? For me, it's about um, liberating the mind. Mm. You know, I I want us to be free mm. through and through and recognize that we have to participate in that in a great way. And it's not going to be something that someone just grants us one day. You know, mm. freedom of thought, freedom of expression freedom of um of stepping into our greatness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and owning it mm-hmm. and not allowing all the other mediums that try to belittle you know who we are what we do and and say even our imprints because i love what you said earlier chris about how you wanted to you know restore what was going on at one world because that's outstanding yeah and and i was thrilled to see that and and i think um the work that's being done is really really important and i think um i think that we have to start the self-liberation in order to step into our proper places in the world. And I hope that um, the books I'm doing are feeding that. Mm-hmm. You know, the book, you know, on celebrating the African-American farmers, we are each other's harvest. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's grow our own food. You know, let's, you know, can we live separately if, if this isn't going to work? If things aren't going to change? And um, I think um, the decision on the George Floyd case was a step in the right direction, but memory seems to me so short and action so contradictory, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, in in the broader society. And I wonder when we're honestly going to pull all this together and have everyone, including Asians and everyone else, have mutual respect Mm-hmm. you know, for each other and each other's contributions to the world. Mm. Mm. You know, it's it's interesting because I think we are in such a unique 
moment right now in which in the past three, four, I'm going to say maybe five years, we have seen a wave of literature that has really spoken to the moment that we're in right now and tried to fill in the gaps about race and gender and identity and white supremacy um, in ways and give biography and give stories that just have not been told before. And I wonder... I'm always concerned, like, so is blackness trendy? Are we just trendy? Or or is there a way to create a new standard, create a new, um, to maintain the momentum of this conversation, maybe is what I'm trying to say. So my question to both of you is, how do we keep these conversations going? And where do we see gaps or voids within the literature that need to be filled, that need to be additional voices added to this conversation? What else can be said? What else should be said? Um, And how can we amplify those ideas so that we don't lose momentum, so that we don't lose the ability to create change? I really love what Tracy was saying about uh, the books that she's trying to do and, and the books that I've seen on Amistad's list have been sort of the beauty of them is I think they do cross a range, right? It's not just books about the current political moment, although some of those books, but also about, you know, like our icons, you know, like Cicely Tyson, about our lives in the broadest way. That's what's not trendy, right? Like, it's not trendy to talk about black life. What's trendy right now is to talk about you know, some people have argued, talk about black suffering. That's trendy at the moment. Um, and, yeah. you know, maybe certain ways of um, talking about racism have become somewhat trendy. Those trends, as we know, come and go. Like, those sort of general population sort of interest in that is not something you can depend on. <laughs> like, it comes and it goes. And I think that's why it's so important that their are like what Tracy is doing. And hopefully what we're able to do, too, which is, like, we don't care if it's trendy or not. Like what we care about is telling these stories and, um, and not necessarily telling them through the lens that, um, you know, is appealing to the most people in the general audience at a given time, but hopefully showing some leadership and saying this is what you, you know, people need to be thinking about and need to be interested in um, and not sort of just sort of following a trend because you can't count on black, blackness being a trend. I mean, I've seen, and Tracy, I know that you've seen the same over the course of our careers, just how there have been these moments when it's like, oh my God, it's hot, you know, like black stuff is hot. Um, and then it goes away. But I do think there might be a shift right now in the sense that I mean, we're seeing it so pervasive and so deep in the culture and that people are actually, um, I think when black people have a chance to, to create and are given platforms to create, um, I think this is true not just of black people, but a lot of people have come from various marginalized, previously marginalized backgrounds. Um, you know, you see real beauty and splendor and, and insight that you haven't seen before. And it's hard to stuff that genie back in the bottle. So I think the key is to keep the publishing, keep the cultural creation broad and honest and authentic um, and, and not, you know, follow whatever the sort of narrow trend is because that's not what's going to be ultimately, you know, meaningful and revol- revolutionary. Yeah, yeah, and long last, have longevity attached to it. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, because we can't we can't ever think of ourselves as as a trend or participate 
in, in such, you know, thinking. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not even really sure um, the conversation that's going on now is really about us. Mm. So much mm. as it may be about making other, other people feel good about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Rather, rather than actually, I, I, I think that we're, we're trying to have a discussion with the books that we're doing collectively. Mm-hmm. I think we're trying to um, search for some answers to some, some longstanding issues. Um, but I do believe, you know, that racism hurts all of us. Yes. You know, because how many more How to Be Happy books can you publish? Yeah, yeah. If, uh, if you're not looking at what is making you unhappy. Mm-hmm. And we're not publishing How to Be Happy books or buying them. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying for a particular audience, you got to get right. Mm-hmm in order to find peace mm-hmm. and solace. And I think that getting right with the rest of the world could be helpful in mm-hmm. finding their happiness. Mm-hmm. I want to, um, this is really good. All of this is really, really good. I want to start to get to questions because we have a lot already queued up. <laughs> People want to ask a lot of different things. And so um, I'm just going to throw it out there and then whoever wants to take it can can take it. Um, so the first one is, um, if you think you have a revolutionary book idea, how do you get it published? How do you get anyone to notice? Maybe add on to that would be like, what are the barriers um, that plague most books from getting published? I'm sorry. Maybe. What? Go ahead. I'm sorry. You, you can have no, please go ahead. No, I was just going to ask for her to repeat the question. I, I didn't quite get it. Oh yeah, sure, sure. It's essentially, is how do you get a revolutionary book? published how what are the barriers to entry uh for oftentimes getting you know these uh books that we might deem radical out uh tracy you wanna... do you want to see it first tracy i think um i think we're looking for revolutionary books i, I don't think there's any barriers um to getting them published these days at all and um, it's a competitive market, and there are lots of editors that are interested in publishing literature by people of color. So there's, um, I think there's plenty of opportunities. And I think um, the only barrier might be if you don't have the credentials or if you haven't, you know, put together that proposal you've been thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And things to remember is like there's a there's the traditional publishing industry and then there's like a million other ways. So if you don't have like say the credentials or the proposal that's that seems like suited to a major publisher, there's still lots of options I think out there for getting those messages out and which might even put you in a position then to be picked up by a major publisher. So I do I agree with Tracy about that. Um, I think we're actually in a strangely a time where there's a real appetite for for books that that are you know, you know pushing out a little further than I think historically in in mainstream book publishing. Mm-hmm. 
There is a, another question that says, anything you can offer as advice for a white woman and a first-time memoirist to publish a story while being mindful to not take up space in unconscious bias? Have you seen anyone not taking up space while taking up space, so to speak? It's <laughs> our question. Is it possible to, to have these conversations as a white woman memoirist? Publish something mindful and thoughtful without taking up the space of unconscious bias. Have you seen that successfully done, perhaps? Uh, I think it can definitely be done. I don't think someone should, should you know, stop themselves from telling their story ever. I don't think that's, um, that's ever really... Uh, Problem. I think the problem comes, you know, maybe on the flip side, which is how the market treats those stories and sometimes how they elevate stories of, uh, you know, white people over anyone else. So, and that's something that, you know, to some degree you have control over as a writer. There's ways of, like, creating dialogue and creating space even within your own work and your own sort of publication, you know, for other voices if you feel like yours is crowding out ones that are maybe more worthy or are normally given less um, attention because of that kind of bias. I think there are things you can do. Um, I don't think that the world needs, you know, needs you to necessarily be quiet. I think it's kind of an interesting time because I think, you know, I think I want to actually hear about white people who are trying to engage with these issues as well. You know, like I, as Tracy said, racism hurts all of us. I don't think racism and it's weirdly is thought of as being black people's problem. But <laughs> it's actually white people who are often the ones who get up to it, you know? And yeah, so yeah. <laughs> um, <meant> this. <laughs> So I don't discourage that at all. But I do think there's definitely a you know, there's obviously historically there have been books, you know, like yeah, I won't name names, but there have been books that where people have really occupied a lot of the space. Um and uh, and direct people away from maybe black voices who who can be telling those stories in a more immediate way, but um, or not just black stories, but but you know all kinds of people from different backgrounds whose stories have had to be filtered through sort of a white lens. But I think that's a little bit different than someone telling their own story like with some kind of authenticity and honesty, um, grappling with these same issues. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Did you want to add to that, Tracy? Um, no, I'm good. I think Chris handled it very, very well. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, the more voices, the better, I think, is always a, is a good thing. Um, another question is uh, for the panelists. So are there specific agents that you work with? Are there people that you like to work with more than others? Can you share your secret? <laughs> Or does it matter, or is it more about the author than the editor? I think that might be a good question, too. I love working with um, agents who, who are fully supportive of their author doing the very best that they can in getting their message across. Mm -hmm. Agents that make excuses um, to keep a particular client is not necessarily doing them a service. Mm, mm. You know, so. Yeah, I mean, I think there's certain criteria that, that I think you're right that make a good agent. Someone who's going to actually help the author, you know, someone who's going to be 
really involved in the process, isn't just trying to sell something because, you know, as you said before, it's trendy or hot, but someone who actually cares about the work. And I think that there are agents who do that. There's agents who don't. And I think sometimes there's agents who do it on some projects and don't do it on other projects. So I think, you know, to me, obviously the project is the thing that's most important. The writer is most important rather than the agent. But I think for writers, obviously agents are hugely important and you should talk to ones that you feel like really kind of connect to you and your work, not just to you as a sellable commodity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the next question is, is it better to self-publish and then try the market or is it better to pitch to publishers first and then hope for the best? I, I would pitch to publishers because it's a full-time job, you know, when you self-publish a book and attempt to sell it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a lot of people who reach out to me on, on various, you know, um, mediums about, you know, oh, I self-published my book. Can you tell me how to sell it now? And I'm just like, that, that question, I really don't, like, I, I don't even have t- the time to answer that question because that's a long, long answer. So um, I, I think there are lots of, of publishers out here, and, I, and I'm not against self-publishing, but just recognize that there's a lot of work involved and it's not going to be magical in the way that it used to be when Elon Harris, you know, self-published his book and, and sold a ton of copies or, or Zane who sold 50,000 copies and then sold 2 million when she got with the publisher. All of, you know, I, I think, I haven't seen that work so much lately. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You know, um, have you, Chris? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I think there's definitely more platforms like, you know, with digital publishing and with Amazon and things like that. I think it's led to there being a lot more writers, though, you know, who are on those platforms. Like when it was, you know, when Elon Harris literally had to drive around with books in the trunk of his car to sell the book. Like, that actually creates kind of a high bar. You know, you have to really believe in your work to do that. Um, I think now a lot of people can get on digital platforms with much much less effort than, than what people had to do when it was just print. And so as a result, you do have, like, mi- literally millions of people who are on, who are selling books. So I think it's it's both easier to, to publish and harder to, um, to get known and recognized in a, in a big way. And... Um, when you're outside of like a, the publishing system, I think by yourself, it's, it's harder than ever. Although people have done it. I mean, I think I've seen a lot of people do it in poetry space, you know, even now and, um, in other, in other forms, but, uh, that are, you know, kind of low investment for the reader. You know, if you just have to pay a couple of dollars and you can see something that can work. Um, so it just depends on what you're writing. Mm, that's a good question. All right. That's a good point. Thank you. Um, so the next question is, um, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but they want to know about, um, what makes a book revolutionary? Do you know it the moment you read it? Are you like, Oh my gosh, this is a gold mine. Or does it take you a while for it to sort of set in for you to see the book's place and who's it might be in conversation with, or is it, is it instant or is it, you know, over time? Do you want to to take this one, Tracy? I mean, like, you know, I'm just going to say, I I think, you know, when you read a proposal, if, if um, this is something that's going to, you know, change the world Mm -hmm. or or change the community. 
you, you may not have all of the book there, but you can see the seeds of, oh, yes, and you can think about different ways in which to layer it and all of that. Yes, you, I, I think you know the important books that come along that can change the world. I, I don't think that there, there are many that come by accident, but, but correct me if I'm wrong, Chris. No, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I think you definitely see it in the beginning, at the very beginning you see the possibility, you know, or even the ambition. And then I think as you're working on it, you, there's, you know, there are various moments, you know, when it opens up to the next level of like, okay, it's actually happening, you know, in terms of the creation, the creative work. And then at a later point, you start to feel like it's actually connecting with people the way you want it to connect. Um, and then even later, you can see it's actually having like some kind of effect on culture and society, you know, beyond what you made, or in the individual, you know, individual reader. Um, you might just, that's the other moment, you know, when you see it's actually happening, when you talk to someone who's read it and they're like, oh, you know, that book changed me. Um, so, but, you know, that's like the confirmation of a thing that, you know, like Tracy said, you probably saw the first time you encountered the idea. Yeah, I was going to ask as, as a follow-up, are there books that you have read and you're like, that's all right, and then it blows up and you're like, I did not see that coming. <laughs> or, or are there books that, you know, you think, this is going to change the world, and it flops. Are there examples, or maybe, I know it's always difficult to name names, but are there, have, <laughs> you, seen that? <laughs> have you seen, at least in a positive way, books that have impressed you or stumped you or maybe did something that you didn't expect the reception would be? Well, definitely on the latter part, the book that you think is going to change the world and doesn't, that has happened uh, many times. Um, it's less likely that a book that I'm just like, meh, and then it turns out to be some kind of enormous change. I mean, you can feel the magic in the books that really end up doing that generally mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and you feel it while you're working on them mm -hmm. you know and then and then sometimes when you know when something's going south and not where you <laughs> wanted it to go like and no matter how many conversations you have mm -hmm. no many how many times you write you know three different 12 page single space editorial <laughs> letters it, you're like, are you, are you reading them? Are, are you, are, is, you have questions? We, we get on the phone and you act like we're, you know, on the same page. But yeah, I still have the same pages I had originally. I don't understand those moments. I don't understand those moments. <laughs> you know, I don't understand them. So I'm always, you know, but you know, during the process, it's not going to be what you wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. and, and that's heartbreaking. Um, and, you know, and, and I don't, I don't know how it is at One World, but, um, I, I don't, I don't always feel like, um, we can, as, as people of color in publishing, you know, actually get the time to say, hey, I need to move this one out a few years mm -hmm. and till we can get it together because it is important, it's going to change things, and to have someone say, yes, let's do that. I, you know, I know that it took 15 years to do um, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and 
most definitely it was worth it. But, you know, I would love at some point once in a while to have that kind of time with the book. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's a really good perspective too, because I don't think people always realize the timing, like how long it takes to, to see a book from start to finish. Um, and sort of the stops and starts along the way. Um, and then the corporate pressures of it all, mm-hmm, you know, because mm-hmm. that all goes together. Yeah, yeah, to get it out there, to get it out there, yeah, yeah. And to get it out there before it's done, you know, is also something that is, you know, needed to be it's taken painful. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> once, I mean, that's how I feel about my writing. Once it's out there, you, you can't take it back, you know? It's not like a tweet you can delete and then, you know, start, start again fresh. What I really meant was... That is, that's the hard, uh, the stickiness of writing. Um, we have another question from a, uh, uh, a listener who says, I don't have credentials or connections because I work full-time in the courts. My revolutionary writing is done in the wee hours before work and comes um, from my experience in the criminal justice system. But I feel locked out of publishing due to a lack of time and connections. Are there any advice? There are other um, listeners who are also asking, do they need an agent to get into the publishing world? Can you just cold call a a publisher or do you have to have representation? It helps a lot to have representation just because like, you know, there are so many people who want to have their books published and um, it's just, it's a matter of like, almost the the pure limitation of the amount of hours there are in a day, like you can't entertain everyone. So you have to have, while also, you know, trying to do intensive editorial work, while also trying to publish the books in a creative and and, and powerful way, um, it's, just, it's a lot. So there does have to be some kind of winnowing process for editors. That said, you know, we are trying to figure out ways to open our process up so that it's not just, you know, so that we create some kind of window that allows us to get material that's not coming from agents and we haven't quite figured it out yet, but it's something we're working on because I do think it's important to open the door for people who aren't agented, um, but we have to do it in some kind of controlled way because otherwise we'll be, we'll be, we'll never publish another book because we'll be just going through um, proposals and submissions and ideas and, you know, emails with like half finished ideas and like there's just you do need something that feels like someone's already put in some time and commitment before you engage with it. Um, but I do take that that uh, questioner's thing very seriously. Like, you know, people sometimes who have, who are closest to the ground, who see what's going on with the greatest clarity and who might have the best ideas and the best stories to tell are not the people who have the time and liberty to tell them necessarily, right? And, but that's just unfortunately, you know, there has to be, you have to carve that out. There's no, there's nothing that can replace you're actually doing it, you know? So um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but I think it's also, you know, there's really no way around the fact that you have to find the time to, to write it and commit to it um, before a publisher can engage with it. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's really um, helpful. Having for our listeners, having a proposal, I think, is, is really key. You're, and generally, for those who don't know, a proposal is, you know, a, a part of your chapter, a sample chapter, a, an annotated table of contents, your introduction, sort of your reason or your motivation for the book, what's it about. Um, but sort of having those key elements where people can read through very quickly what your book is trying to accomplish and and maybe a sample portion of that uh, book is, is 
part of the elements of a proposal. Um, that being said, how many proposals are you reading a day? Are you constantly swamped? Are you like, eh, I take a few things per day? Or is it, I'm always reading, I get through 50 proposals a day. Like what, what does a typical day at work look like for you? How much are you reading? Okay, I'll go first, Chris. <laughs> well, mostly from Monday through Friday from 9 to 5, we're reading emails. Um, so getting very little work done then. And most of our work is done after hours and on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Is it the same for you as well, Chris? Are you reading more emails? <laughs> yeah, the day is spent. I mean, this is what people should know about editors is that in a book publishing company, the editor isn't just editing and they aren't just acquiring. They're also overseeing the entire process for every book they have. And that means they're worrying about covers, they're worrying about design, they're worried about publicity, they're worried about marketing, they're worried about, and they have like a bunch of writers under contract who are sending them drafts of things or calling them with questions or wanting to talk about their reporting and all that. And um, and so it's a, it's you're pretty engaged <laughs> all day long. Um, and then you actually have to edit manuscripts. So those are hundreds of pages, you know, that take, that'll take a good 50, 60, 70 hours to get through a manuscript, um, if you're doing it carefully. And, um, so you really don't have that much time for considering new projects. And then you have the project that comes in from, that feels like, you know, fully developed and ready to go and exciting. And you, you have to kind of figure out how you're going to acquire it and compete with other people for it. And then you have to have time to read stuff from, uh, that's, purely speculative, like you have no idea who this person is, if it's good, if it's not good, and the time you have for that is very limited. Um, and, you know, one of the things, like I said, we're trying to do is build in more of that time and time where our assistants or assistant editors or younger staff members can kind of do some of that work, but um, uh, that's that's where we're at. That's where we're at. Can you, I know we, we will need to wrap up soon. I do want to take uh, one, maybe two more questions at the most, but uh, someone wants to know, do you have stories personally about transformational or transformative interactions that you had with authors and their texts? Is there something that you uh, read or an interaction that you had that, that um, changed something for you? Miss, Miss Tyson changed me. Mm. Mm. How so? You know, she was very um, insistent that we meet regularly uh -huh. Uh -huh. so that I would know her and know her voice. And that meant a lot. Um, and we talked about other things. We talked about, you know, Black people supporting Black people. We talked about... Um, a lot about um, the, about business and how to do business with each other mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and not to have someone in between you. Mm -hmm. She was very insistent that no decisions be made about her book unless I was in the room or she mm -hmm. was in the room. And so I learned a lot from that because not a lot of people are necessarily engaged at that level, particularly if, if they're a celebrity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I don't do a lot of celebrity, um, books, but I do 
do um, I do do celebrity memoirs by people I feel who are legends and whose story deserve to be told, and um, because of their contributions to the to the world, um, and so that 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 changed me and going forward, that's the only way I will be, you know, working with, you know, someone of her, her stature and caliber and in that realm. And so I have just as much communication with say a Jennifer Lewis as I do, um, a Steve Harvey, um, and developing that. So with Mary J. Blige, because it's really important that there's a level of trust Mm-hmm. And then the more you know each other, the more likely you are to get to the um, heart mm-hmm. of what moves them so that it, so that it's not a superficial, you know, like celebrity memoir, but one that can be, that can live and, and change the, the world. I've learned a lot from working with Zora Neale Hurston's trust mm-hmm. uh, um, immensely from Lois Gaston and Lucy um, Lissandra and their dedication and our collaboration and deciding to use African-American artists of all of their books and and all of this as a way to uplift the entire talent of, of the community. So I've, I've learned important things like that, like businessy things. And, um, and, the, and, the, and the authors that are most receptive to to getting it right, I love that. Yeah. And I love working with them. Yeah. That's awesome. Chris, we're going to let you be sort of the, the final word as we begin to wrap up. Can you tell us about, you know, who you're reading that you've had a powerful experience with? What what author brings you joy and what you're reading lately? Um, I think would be great for a lot of people to hear. Yeah. Um, so, but I thought that was really beautifully said um just by tracy and um and it produced such a beautiful book with uh cecily tyson um so that's that must have just been uh an incredible and 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 you know somewhat painful experience but um but yes yeah, so i'm reading uh lots of things right now um they're not all bringing me joy but um i'm reading a, a really i think important book that's actually you're kind of shifting the way I'm thinking about some things, which I think is where I always look for in a book called uh, Peculiar Indifference that was recommended by um, a friend of mine, uh, Johnny Cobb. And it's a book that's about violence in black communities um, and homicide in black communities in particular, um, which I've also published uh, some books on. Um, but the numbers are just so staggering. Like you see that there's hundreds of thousands, like since 2000. The number was 182,000 or something. Black people have been murdered, and across the country, and how you know so much of that grows out of the just massive indifference that this country has shown historically, but also in the present to black lives, and not just in the cases where police shoot black people, but in the ways that black people are policed, in the ways that their you know our school systems are, the way that our housing segregation works. All of it leads to just an immense and tragic amount of violence. And, and you know, we were talking before about, like, what's trendy and not trendy, and I think that's 